but we are looking at the whole topic of offence on Sunday afternoons at Kensington Temple in the course of this month of April. Some of you may already have been at our 2.30 series, which is looking at walking free from offence and how to deal with personal offence in your life when people offend you and how to deal with when you've offended others. But here at the five o'clock service, we're going to be focusing a little bit more, not on how we offend one another, but we're going to be looking at the offence of the gospel and what that means for us today. Now, I've taken a scripture, Romans chapter 9, verse 33, which, which is on the uh, publicizing in the Revival Times, saying, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The offense of the gospel. What are we talking about when we're talking about the offense of the gospel? Well, we're not talking about offensive Christians. And later on in, in this uh, uh, series, we'll be looking at um, the difference between the offense of the gospel and offensive Christians. Sometimes Christians are very offensive in their manners and their dealings, not just with one another, but with also the world. And, and they call that the offense of the gospel. But, but actually, it's just their bad character. We're not going to be talking about that, although we will come to the difference between that later on in the series. We're talking about the actual offense of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that word offense means a stumbling block. In the Greek word, the word is scandalon, where we get the idea of a scandal, or it's scandalous. This offense, a stumbling block, and it's taught the scandalon was the part of a trap. If you were trying to trap an animal, the scandalon was part of the trap upon which the bait would be attached. And then the animal would come along, would see the bait, take the bait, and then would suddenly be trapped and unable to move. So when we speak about offense, stumbling block, or scandalon, it's like a trap that's lying in somebody's way and they get caught in it, or the stumbling block. They stumble over it, they fall over it, they can't get past it on their way of their journey. And I'd like us to start, and this today I'm just going to be in introduction looking at the sort of context of what we're talking about of the offense of the gospel. And then we'll unpackage it later on in this series. But if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. Now, Paul is dealing with a hive of sectarian offenses when he comes to Corinth. People are going after one preacher and promoting that preacher against another preacher and there is division and there is factionalism and there, there is partisanship and he is to deal with this in Corinth. And as he deals with this, he will speak about the purity and the offense of the gospel. So if you're with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's start from verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, 
that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You see, the problem here is that people were looking for the latest flavor of preaching, and they were going to the preacher that best suited themselves. And Paul is saying, look, we need to get rid of this factionalism, and we need to get down to the cross. And he says this, let's, verse 18, let's, let's go on. This is where we're going to see the offense or the scandal. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice this, we're going to come back again and again and again, that the gospel is the power of God, not a power of God, but the main manifestation of God's power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who perish, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block of offense, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those that are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. There it is again. The power of God, Christ, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I'm going to continue reading. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, and not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. And so here we see Paul saying that the gospel, when it is preached, has two stumbling effects. It stumbles the Jews because they're looking for a sign. And it stumbles the Greeks or the Gentiles because to them it's pure foolishness. And in this respect of Corinthians, the big problem was most of them were Gentiles. He was dealing with a Gentile church, 
And uh, they, they were obsessed by signs and wonders and spiritual gifts. They weren't interested in love. And, and Paul would have to correct them and, and bring them back to the focus of the fruit of the Spirit as well as the gifts of the Spirit. And we've already seen in this context, haven't we, that they were looking for the flashy preachers. Or maybe the preachers weren't flashy. I don't want to call Apollos flashy. He was a, a man of God, but he seems to be one of the best of the Christian orators of the time. But, but they were going after or, or making these preachers actually into idols. I'm for Peter. Who are you for? Who's your favorite preacher? I'm for Apollos. Oh, not me. I'm for Paul. And so instead of focusing on the gospel, what we see here is a manifestation of personality. People were excited about personality and they were looking at the man, not the message. And in order to deal with this, this popularity type of context of this immaturity, Paul was saying, you've got it all wrong. It's not about the messenger. It's not about Apollos and how he speaks or, or Peter and his Hebrew accent. It's not about me, Paul, and my, uh, my, my, my academic brain. It's not about the messenger, but it's about the message. In fact, it seems that Paul is saying, it seems that the messenger is starting to get in the way of the message. And so Paul says, look, when I, when I came to you, I didn't, I didn't come in some sort of popularity contest, but on the contrary, I understood that in some manner I had to empty myself in order for the message to fill my mouth. In, in some way, I, I had to realize my powerlessness to communicate divine truths before divine truths could be communicated. I need to... I needed to appreciate my weakness. I needed to humble myself to be an earthen vessel for the gospel to come to you. And, and that gospel that came to you didn't come tickling your ears. But on the contrary, it came loaded with power, but also loaded with offense. The offense to the Greeks, the stumbling block to them, was that it just wasn't reasonable to them. It just didn't seem right. We're going to come to that late, later on as we go forward. But also to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. Now, now, the gospel was a stumbling block to Greeks, and the Corinthians were mainly of that Greek understanding and mind, mind thinking. But we also see in Galatians that Paul also said that he preaches the gospel and that it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because the stumbling block to the Jews was this was a message of salvation by faith alone. Just come with me for a second in Romans chapter 9 verse 30. Remember these are both stumbling blocks. They're snares, they're traps. They can't get over these stumbling blocks except through faith in Christ. And it is an offense to people. So we see in Romans chapter 9. Now, what's happening in Romans chapter 9? Well, Paul is answering the question, how come the Jewish people aren't getting saved like they used to? When it began in the book of Acts, the Jews were coming in in their thousands, and there was a great move amongst them. But by the time of Romans, people were saying, what's happened to the Jews? Has God given up on the Jews? Uh, the Gentiles are now coming in their thousands, but, but the Jews are coming like a trickle. It seems that some... And so Paul has to answer 
this question. And one of the things that he is saying in Romans 9 and verse 30 is, the problem is, is the gospel is an offense to the Jewish mindset, a stumbling block that they can only get over by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So Romans chapter uh, uh, 9 verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to the righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. What was the stumbling stone? Faith. As it is written, verse 33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. When we talk about the gospel, I'll unpackage what the gospel is a little, a little bit more, the good news of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. We find that one stumbling block that will always come with the gospel is when we preach salvation from sin as a free gift. And that all you have to do to receive forgiveness of sins is to believe that Jesus died for you and rose again. We'll find later on in Romans chapter 10, it says, if you believe in your and confess with your that Jesus is and raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Now, that's all you need to be saved. Do you know that? You don't need any other doctrine. You, that's all you If you truly believe in your heart once, if you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is, Lord, and that he was raised from the dead, which meant that he died on the cross, you're saved. You know, it, it, it's almost too good to be true. And in fact, it is too good to be true for many people. Why? Because they have this Jewish understanding that somehow, in some way, I have to earn my place in heaven. There's whole Christian organizations that are built on this. You know Roman Catholicism? How many ex-Roman Catholics have we got here today? Some of you maybe, not even ex-Roman Catholics, but when I did my theology degree at Durham University, um, some of my best friends were training for the Catholic priesthood. In fact, i just become a Christian in the first term of university, and during that term, I nearly converted to Catholicism. I was, I was a very young baby Christian, and I was doing a theology degree. It took me a while to get stable, you understand. But I studied it deeply and understood that at the heart of Roman Catholic teaching is works. It's works. It's works. It's what you do. You know, you go to confession to the priest, and he gives you works to do. It's works. Well, this is a stumbling block to many, many, many people because they think there's something that they have to do to get to heaven. You know, even in this age where so many people have turned away from God, they still feel they have to do something good to purge their souls. And so we find that in this day and age, there's a lot of people that when they leave school, they go off to Africa or India or go and do some sort of good works or some sort of charitable thing. And they think that buying by doing good works, somehow they have a righteousness. And so we see in this passage that the problem here was that 
the gift of God is to be received by faith alone. And some people just can't understand it. Because the natural man cannot understand the things of faith, as Paul will speak about later in Corinthians. But also we find that this offense that 1 Corinthians is talking about to Christ, it's the Jews are looking for a sign, but also the Greeks, they just think it's foolishness. And when we talk about what the gospel is in a few moments' time, we'll, we'll emphasize the foolishness of the gospel. It, it, it just doesn't make sense to them. It just doesn't make sense. Do you remember when you weren't a Christian? For some of you, that will be a while back. For some of you, it might not be too far back. Do you remember when people used to speak to you about the gospel or, or somebody would witness to you? Do you remember at the time how it made no sense to you? It was just seemed silly to you? I mean, I remember when I was not yet, I hadn't yet given my life to the Lord and I was doing A-levels at school and one of the A-levels I was doing was religious education and one of the chief parts, almost half of that A-level was studying the Gospel of John. I wasn't even saved, but I was studying the Gospel of John. We were looking at words like logos and, and all these concepts and at the time I was working on a Saturday, a Saturday day job at Argos and I remember my manager was a bit strange because he was a Christian. I didn't really know any Christians at the time, uh, even though I was studying A-level on Gospel of John. And during the break, he invited me to his office. He said, oh, so you're doing RE? I said, yes. He said, oh, you're doing the Gospel of John. I said, yes, that's right. He said, well, do you know the most famous verse in Scripture is found in John's Gospel? And I said, no. He said, yes. I said, well, what's that then? John 3.16, you ever heard of it? No. So he said, for God so loved the world. Exactly. And you know what? It went right over my head. I remember, I can put myself in my own shoes there. I thought, what is he talking about? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should perish. What is he talking about? You know, it made absolutely no sense to me at all, even though I was about to get an A-level in RE made no sense to me. I remember once being at university and, and getting saved in the first term. And I was sitting with a whole bunch of different tutors, and some were Christians, some were atheists, some were all. There was a, a real bunch of strange and colorful doctors and professors. And one of these professors that was teaching us was going through the Greek, and he was going through the parables in the New Testament Greek. And I was a bit perplexed because I was learning so much from this man. I mean, as he got into the Greek and explained the different parables, I was not only learning for my degree, but I was going home saying, I never understood that. I was applying it to my life, and I was thinking, this, this is amazing. But then I started to have a little bit of a confusion because I thought, I don't understand God. How can this man, who's not even a Christian, know so much about the word and the good news that's here about the treasure and the pearl, and I'm sitting learning, he's teaching, and I'm going home rejoicing and have learned something, and yet he's not even a Christian. And I struggled with that for a while. How could a non-Christian be teaching me Christian truths? And uh, then I felt like the Lord spoke to me, just in my thinking process, 
and, um, and said to me, what does he do with that which he teaches you? I thought he does nothing. And then I realized, he's teaching me about a treasure buried in a field. But he sees no reason to go and find the treasure. He's teaching me about a precious pearl. But he sees no reason for this pearl in his life. Why? Because although he could speak and teach these things, his, well, didn't Jesus say the purpose of his parables, one purpose of his parables was what? Seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear. He was seeing, but he wasn't seeing. He was hearing, but he wasn't hearing. And you remember the time when you didn't understand what people were talking about, and the gospel was ridiculous, it was silly, it was, it was stupid, until the Holy Spirit began to do a work on you. And you had to come and humble yourself. And I love the, the context of, of the gospel of power because we've just heard about all this infighting and competition, not between the preachers, but between the followers of the preachers. And then here we've got, we've got this gospel that is foolish, foolish to the world. And it is a stumbling block to the Jews that want to sign it is a stumbling block to the Greeks who want the wisdom of the world. And then God says, this is the way I work. The gospel is the complete revelation of who God is. And he says, look at yourself. Not many mighty, not many noble. And then in this passage, he gives the way of the gospel and the way of the world. And the way that the world thinks is all about being wise, being mighty, being noble and honoured in the eyes of the world, being clever. But in God's view and the gospel view, it's about not being wise, not being mighty, not being noble. It's about foolishness and weakness, being despised and base. And, and God says he's chosen these things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. You know, sometimes, and it might seem like that today, sometimes we're like saying, What's happened to the power of the gospel? It seems that all these unchristian, non-Christian philosophies, people seem to be loving and believing, and it seems like anybody will believe in anything but the gospel. Well, sometimes it, it seems like that. And it seems like the gospel and the heritage of the church has been tossed aside, and that people love the wise things of this world. They love the noble things of this world. The mighty, the clever, the rich, the famous, the great politicians, all these people are our culture of fame, our culture of wisdom. You know, who are the high priests of society today? They roll them on to Radio 4 and they roll them off. Here's Professor So-and-so from Southampton, an expert on. Here's Dr. So-and-so from Harvard, an expert on. And they will tell us what to believe, what's right and what's wrong. You know, even my own father, who is a Christian, but has, has come, he got saved through an Alpha course and he's a uh, retired professor of geography, but sometimes it amazes me how <laughs> foolish he is in his thinking when it comes to the gospel. That he really is still on milk. 
uh, I take the Times Literary Supplement, the TLS, just to read, and I gave, gave him a copy that I hadn't read yet, and he circled it. It must have been from a few weeks ago, and, and put it on me, think, oh, you want to read this? And it was some person talking about the fact that the canon of Scripture, in other words, how did we decide which books got into the New Testament? And this man was writing in, in this t t the Times, TLS, he was writing about how the church had made it all up, had deceived the world and put it all together and it was totally corrupt. And I looked at this and I thought, I thought to myself, do you know what? Even the article itself at so many points doesn't stand in the way it's been presented. It was like a Dan Brown novel. And yet my father fell for it, fell for it like that and thought that he could bring it to me. Well, I've got a book I'm going to be giving him in a week <laughs> that's going to help him with that. But the foolishness that somebody who doesn't know anything about the gospel could be paraded in, in such, a, a, such literature without even thinking what, what's, what's going on. The wise, the mighty, the clever. But here we see that God, God uses those that aren't wise, those aren't mighty, those aren't noble, those aren't foolish, aren't, those that are weak and despised and base. And, and these are the ones. Why? Because God, and this is important, has chosen the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. I always think of Jesus in the stable in the manger and all that power around him. Nobody even knew. He, wasn't, he didn't even make the hotel. There was no room in the Premier Inn. He had to go in the garage. Nobody knew him. He was, he, he was there and, and, and a tiny little baby born to a woman that most people had thought had committed adultery, out of the way. Yet that tiny child that is the gospel was going to shame the wise. It's wonderful how God starts with the small. It's wonderful how God allows sometimes in history the world to get so full of itself and then in the midst of it brings it down. Now, I'd like us... And, and the reason God does this is that he wants our trust to, to rest in the power of God and not the wisdom of man. Let's talk a little bit about what the gospel is. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. You see, the gospel really means good news. And the gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing. Jesus is God's good news to mankind. For God so loved the world that he sent the good news, his son himself. And in Luke chapter 4, we have, we have Jesus' manifesto of all the elections that are going to be coming up soon. And there's big talks about manifesto. Believe in our manifesto and vote for us. Well, here is the gospel manifesto in Luke chapter 4. Verse 17, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to pray, proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of the sight to the blind. And set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Notice he didn't say the Spirit of the Lord 
is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the rich and famous and superstars. He has sent me to go to those whose heads are full of intellect and philosophy. He's told me to proclaim to the kings and rulers and to those that see and understand all things and to those that are empowered in society. No, no, it's the poor. It's the poor. It's the brokenhearted. It's the captives. It's the blind. It's the oppressed. Where are these people? These are the forgotten people, the marginalized people, the people with no power, the people that doesn't look like they're going to amount to anything, the ones that will just make it through the day or just make it through the week. These are the powerless ones, the despised, the ones that aren't on TV, the ones that aren't calling the shots. And Jesus says, these are the people that I'm going to preach my good news. And these are the people that I'm going to convert. And these are the people that I'm going to use so that my power will be displayed. This is what Jesus is saying. That doesn't mean that it's impossible for a rich man to get saved. But I tell you what, a rich, a rich man that gets saved should be on his face thinking, my God, I don't deserve to be here. See what I'm saying? Because he's not the primary focus. Well, seems like we've got things turned upside down, out, downside up in many of our thinking as well. And then let's go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, which I call the gospel in a nutshell. Well, not just I, many people call it the gospel in a nutshell. As Paul is talking about what is the good news. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3. And then we'll notice the elements here. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage to the elements of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. All the principal parts of the gospel message are here for you. The fact that we are under bondage before, that we are saved, before we're saved, that we need to be redeemed, we need to be brought back, we're under the power of the enemy. The fact that at the right time, God sent a son, his own son, who was also born of a woman, fully God and fully man, who came to live under the law, to redeem us from the law's punishment, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we're sons, God has sent forth his spirit. Do you know, the gospel doesn't end when your sins are forgiven when you believe. No, the whole point of the gospel is not that you receive forgiveness of sins. The whole point of the gospel is that you receive forgiveness of sins so that you can receive the spirit of the Father crying Abba in your heart. That is the gospel message. 
that your hearts are cleansed by faith, not full stop, but continuous, so that you can receive God's guarantee of your salvation. Turn with me now to Romans 1.16, because I want to come at this offense of the gospel now from, from a different angle. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul speaking. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. There it is again. The gospel is power. This message is power. And notice, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why didn't he say, I'm proud of the gospel? Why did he put it in a negative? Why didn't he just say, I am so proud of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Greek. I'm just so proud of the gospel. Why did he say, I'm not ashamed? You see, shame is part of the offense of the gospel, isn't it? I'll tell you why Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel rather than, I am proud of the gospel because he had to deal with people that were ashamed of the gospel. They may have been saved by the gospel, but they found its contents and its message almost embarrassing. Now, to say that we never face the shame of the gospel would be untrue. I'm sure each one of us could think of times where we wanted to share the message of the gospel that we just saw in Galatians 4, 3, the gospel in a nutshell, Luke 4. We wanted to share it in personal evangelism. We wanted to tell people about God sending his son and Jesus dying for their sins. And have you ever felt a difficulty in saying it? Or, 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 or you're trying to speak it and, you, and, and you're a little bit ashamed, a little bit embarrassed? Don't, don't, be, don't feel guilty about that. It's part of the course. If you've ever felt ashamed or embarrassed or, 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 or like, I don't know if I should share, don't, don't, don't feel too bad because we all have to cross that. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be embarrassed by the gospel. Why? Because it is power. Think about how you got saved. Someone shared the good news with you and look, Look at where you are now. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's power for everyone who believes. Power. I mean power that saves you. Power that transforms you, that translates you from a kingdom of darkness. Literally power to take you out of an eternal kingdom of darkness pluck you out of there by its power and plant you in a kingdom of light. A power that is able to come into your dead spiritual life. You are dead in your sins and transgressions. You're like a corpse before the gospel came to you. When it comes to the things of God and the words of God and spiritual matters... We are all born corpses, spiritual corpses. There is no life in us. None of us seek God. No, not one. We're corpses. And, and, and you can't talk to a corpse. You, can, you can't have a relationship with a corpse. When, when someone's dead, they're dead. And they've been translated to a different realm. You are dead to God. But the gospel 
was preached under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and it caused you to be born again. Raised on the inside. I mean, a miracle took place by the sharing of these truths. The Holy Spirit came upon it, got hold of your dead spirit and caused you to be born of the Spirit. Wow, that's power. Caused you to come out of the house of Satan and be in the house of God. For in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's salvation is revealed through the gospel. The way God saves and delivers and frees and heals and restores is in the gospel. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. Three times found in the New Testament. It's all about trusting God. Just trusting him. In fact, the Hebrew can be translated in Habakkuk 2.4, not just the just shall live by faith, but the just shall live by his faithfulness. You know it already. We've preached that here before. Now that you trust in him. Trust in him. Now, that's all right. That's great. But we're going to hit the stumbling block now. And this is either going to be a stumbling block of offense because if, if, if we read this out on the 9 o'clock news... And, and said at the 9 o'clock news tonight, I want to talk to you about the state of Great Britain today and all of you that have not believed on Jesus as your saviour, this is who you are and this is how God thinks of you. And we're about to read this. We're going to cause some offence. But at the same time as I read this, we're going to cause some joy because you're going to think, thank God I'm not there anymore. Look at this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation, verse 16. And then he begins to, to use this word for. Paul is moving from step to step. He's showing you the consequences of what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Why? For in it, God's righteousness is revealed. The just shall live by faith. But he doesn't stop there. He then says, for the wrath of God is revealed. So we have power to save the gospel. Don't be ashamed. It's so powerful. It reveals God, his saving power. And it reveals it for a purpose because the wrath of God has also been revealed. And let's read this. I'm reading it now in the 9 o'clock news on ITV. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, Britain, is without excuse. Because although they know God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts. I think I'm offending some people already up and down Britain. Foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them over to uncleanliness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves 
who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of women burned in the lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled. Now listen to this list. Because such were we. And, and being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, Evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are without excuse, O man. I'm glad I've been delivered from that. The gospel is the power of God that reveals God's righteousness because of what we've just read. The gospel, the wrath of God is revealed. Now, we're going to talk more about this as things on, but I want to say one of the big scandals of the gospel is the scandal of the cross, which we've been seeing, specifically the cross. I was thinking to myself last night while I was just resting, and I was thinking to myself, if I could think of two symbols to sum up the gospel and the gospel message, two symbols, what would I think of? And I don't know if this is the best way. It just came to my mind. It's one way of looking. I thought, blood and fire. And I thought of the Salvation Army. And that, that was their motto, blood and fire. And their newspaper, still is, was called The War Cry. Could you imagine if we were doing a new magazine and we said, what should we call it, Revival Times? No, let's call it The War Cry. Blood, fire, and a gospel war cry. Now, what I mean about this blood is that Christianity is a blood religion. It's a blood religion. Christianity is all about the blood it's about sacrifice and death on a cross. It's bloody religion. Christianity is bloody religion. And we glory in the blood and we preach the blood, which is the sacrifice of Christ. You know, already people are feeling faint, talking about blood too much. We're in a culture where we can hardly deal with blood. You know, you go and you look at the bacon in the counter, ooh, there's a bit of blood in there. But we preach a religion based on blood sacrifice. And this sacrifice is to do with the wrath of God and propitiation. Turn with me to 1 John 4 and verse 9 for a definition of love. Now as we go through the weeks, we're going to look at how people water down the gospel, try and take the offense out of the gospel. And this is one of the main ways that they take the offense out of the gospel. They try to say there's no wrath of God, there's no anger of God against sin and sinner that needs to be dealt with. And they preach a love that really isn't love at all, but sentimentality. 
But here we see a definition of love, if I can find. 1 John 4, verse... verse 9. Here we have a definition. In this is love. In this, the love of God was manifest towards us. God has sent his only begotten son into the world. There, there is the message of the gospel, isn't it? God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we may live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, because we didn't, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is an extremely important word that is at the heart of the gospel. And that word propitiation, what it's talking about is it's talking about appeasing the wrath and anger of God on account of sin. Appeasing. The, the idea being that God is angry. That God is in fury. Not some wild anger when we say, oh, someone's just, just lost it, you know, inappropriate anger. But God is angry. In fact, he's furious against sin. And he has every right and reason to be. And that and somehow that anger needs to be propitiated, expiated, calm. That's the idea of calming it down. Let me just go a little bit. Some people don't like this word because they think of pagan religions where you'd have an angry God. Some pagan religion. Some of you know this from the Philippines and other places where there'll be little places of sacrifice and sometimes what you do is you take some food sacrifice, don't you, just in case the gods get angry. And, and this is found in folk religion. Your, ang your demons or your gods, you keep appeasing them. So oh, give them some wine. Give them some food offering. Why? Keep them calm. You don't want to get them angry. If you want safety on your journey and you see an altar, you just put a little bit of, of, of food sacrifice there, calming that demon so it doesn't affect you. And so some people say, well, this couldn't possibly mean this about our God, that, that God means calming. Well, he's not, he's not like that. He's not, it's not a human anger. Where we fly. This is appropriate. If you really want to understand God's anger, you have to look at the doctrine of eternal damnation and the unquenchable fire that Jesus keeps speaking about. But here we find he loved us and sent, our son to be a sent his son to be a propitiation. So you've got love and wrath again. You've got love and anger in the same sentence. I like to call this love with honour. You see, some people say, oh, it doesn't matter what you do, God loves you. Oh, it doesn't matter, God just loves everybody, it doesn't matter what religion you are, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. God is just a God of, of love. Well, where's his honour? And God's honour is offended by sin. But God loves us so much that he doesn't leave his wrath hanging over us, but he sends his son. And his son comes and pays the price that we should pay. And if we're not Christians, shall pay. And, and there's not long enough to pay it. You can't exhaust the anger and wrath of God against sin. The only person that exhausted it 
What's his name? Every drop of God's righteous, measured wrath and anger against sin was poured out on his own son. The Greek word for propitiation is um, hilasteron. And that word also is the Greek word for mercy seat. Isn't that amazing? So in Hebrews, when it speaks about the mercy seat, it uses the same word for propitiation. The place of mercy for our lives is the place where God's wrath and anger is dealt with by what? Blood. God. God loved us, but he, he had to deal with the issues of wrath. And he sent his son, and he allowed his own son's blood to be shed to deal with that anger. It was love with honor. You know, I wouldn't give my son for any of you. I wouldn't shed my son's blood for you. But God shed his, blood, his son's blood for us. And on that mercy seat, blood was poured out of his son. And God saw the blood. And we're coming up to Easter and Passover, aren't we? He saw the blood and anyone who believed, he passed over. Isn't it wonderful? Do you know the blood of Jesus is as powerful today as the day it was shed? As powerful today, it's as fresh today. It was one sacrifice for all time. The power of the blood to deal with God's wrath over our lives is as powerful today and all it needs is faith. We are priests and we need a great blood outpouring. We need a great blood outpouring. What do I mean by that? I mean the message of the blood that was slain 2,000 years ago. And as we begin to preach and speak with boldness, and we need the Holy Spirit like never before. Thank God for the Holy Spirit's ordinary work in the church. You say ordinary work? Yes, ordinary work in the church. He's saving people, he's blessing us, he's keeping us. He said, oh, that's, that's a bit rude to call God's work in the church ordinary. It's ordinary compared to what he wants to do. We need to believe for an extraordinary move of the Holy Spirit in our lives, an extraordinary sanctification, an extraordinary move of the Holy Spirit. Like in the day of Acts, a revival is our only hope, a reviving of the message of the cross with God owning it, sending his spirit on it like never before. It's the hope of this nation. And the beautiful thing is, God can do it. Sometimes God just lets the enemy build up and build up and build up. Build up and build up and build up. And the enemy's strength build up, build up. Because God's allowing him to build up for a fall. But he's going to do it through his people. He's looking for gospel carriers. Gospelers. Preachers and speakers and sharers and witnesses. Because a gospel not preached or shared is a gospel without power. How can they be saved if they don't hear? And how can they hear if we don't preach or tell them? But God is sending us. God bless you. Next week, we're going to look at why does God offend? And we'll look at why does Jesus offend? It seems that God offended as many people, Jesus offended as many people as he drew, didn't he? In the New Testament. So we're going to look at the offense and how, how Jesus moved in offense and why people were offended and why sometimes he let them be offended 
next week. God bless you.